Hello and welcome to Front Page Radio with your host, international author, broadcaster, and journalist Dan Wooding, the founder of Assist Ministries and the Assist News Service. Dan, who was born in Nigeria of British missionary parents, was raised in England and later worked for some of Great Britain's largest newspapers. He has been a journalist covering the world for some 47 years now with a focus on persecuted Christians and missions. And now, here's Dan Wooding with today's guest. Welcome to today's Front Page Radio. Once again, I am in North Wales, and I am with an old friend, but also someone who I think you will find very fascinating. His name is Steve Goddard. Steve, thank you for being on the program. It's a real pleasure. Now, Steve is a multi-talented, multi-faceted person, but I thought you would be interested to know how he's involved with the church in Great Britain. You know, we've just come back to live in Britain after 36 years, and um, many people in America think that Britain is dark and there are not many Christians going, you know, uh, going to church here anymore and that. But Steve is uh, is here to tell you the real story. He now runs a thing called the Christian Resources Exhibition, or CRE. So first of all, let's give a little pocket history of the CRE. Well, the Christian Resources Exhibition is best described as an ideal church show. <laughs> um, everybody knows the ideal home exhibition. But if you could imagine that something that was targeted specifically for churches, then this is what the exhibition is all about. So you might find down one aisle uh, steeplejacks. You might find somebody um, selling or creating stained glass. You might have somebody doing something very basic like damp proof coursing or clergy clothing or communion wine and uh, or even computers or websites and um, charities and missions and agencies working with uh, developing world um, situations. So. It is uh, a day of discoveries. The only way I can describe it, if you're a visitor, you're going out there to discover what is new and um, what is the best practice, too, um, in all uh, in seven days a week church life. So it's not just about services. It's not just about Bibles. It's not just about worship. But worship is a central part of what we do. Resources for worship. It's everything that might take place uh, underneath the roof. Indeed, the roof itself. <laughs> is something that we're bothered about of of your local church. Now you even have a karaoke. <laughs> you can, is it was it something like five thousand here? But tell us about that. Well, of course, these days um, some churches, smaller churches, struggle to find an organist to play um, weekly um, at church, uh, or certainly a competent uh, um, organist. So. One company called the Digital Hymnal um, have come up with a, a kind of briefcase-sized karaoke player. That's the only way I can describe it. Built into it is 5,000 hymns played beautifully um, by piano or you can add orchestration. And it's all digital and uh, with a remote control. And if you're a minister and you, your, your organist has let you down or you simply haven't got one at all, you can just plug this into your uh, church PA system and it will play 5,000 hymns at the touch of a button. So <laughs> he will go, today we'll sing, let's sing, sing number 321, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Press 321 on his remote control and out booms, Praise My Soul, <laughs> the King of Heaven. What makes this 
distinctive technologically is it's the only remote control probably in the world that has an amen button on it. <laughs> it actually says amen on the button so that if you want at the end of the hymn to have that amen to close the hymn, you can. <laughs> You've even had a inflatable church. I find that very interesting. How did that come about? Well, there's a gentleman who we discovered uh, created a, an inflatable church that does inflate. It takes several hours to inflate. But once it is up, it is 47 feet high, 47 feet across. It looks like a wonderful sort of Gothic styled church. Um, and inside is an inflatable um, pulpit, an inflatable organ. You doesn't play but it inflates and indeed inflatable pews um and this uh, was created by the gentleman because he thought it was a bit of fun and he'd make it into a sort of a nightclub um but there wasn't any great demand to ever run a nightclub in a church uh, an inflated church so i said why don't you bring it along to the exhibition and uh, we will show it to our visitors to use it possibly in going out into the community, out on the village green or in a town square, uh, to put up, you know, taking church to the people rather than expecting people to come to church. <laughs> and so we um, we ran it uh, in in the early 2000s, actually, at CRE uh, with, with great success. And also you've been training vicars who are like, you know, pastors in the Church of England to do comedy well let's be honest uh, when you sit there fidgeting listening to the latest sermon and you think wow um you know trying to prop the eyelids awake with uh, matchsticks <laughs> let's be honest we've all been there our minds drift away and we think uh, wouldn't it be nice to hear a joke or two um wouldn't it be nice if um the vicars knew how to actually crack a joke um now i'm not saying that that's what they're there for but the odd one or two would be nice so we've discovered a gentleman who trains comedians in comedy, um, who is a Christian. And he came along to, on several shows recently, to train about half a dozen clergy um, as to, uh, and to teach them how to, to crack jokes. And what kind of style, how much speed, what sort of content. So what we did was we, um, we gave them five hours training. But in the afternoon on that one day, they had to go up, stand live in front <laughs> of the, uh, the on the show floor and crack jokes, crack maybe only one, maybe two or three. And then we judged the winner. <laughs> and um, this was uh, enormously successful. You'd think, well, would people want to put themselves through that? They certainly did. <laughs> and they enjoyed it. And we had um, one of famous uh, UK comedian, Bobby Ball, came uh, to offer advice on, on one occasion. And, um, and also uh, Don McLean, another uh, uh, comedian from the UK. So it was uh, very successful. And it was all, um, all part and parcel of, of a resources exhibition. Uh, everything, as I say, from Bibles to humour. Um, uh, from communion wine to um, uh, cl clergy clothing, dog collars, everything <laughs> and under this one. Uh, it's a kind of one stop shop. I remember coming to one of them and, and there were there was a, a singer or a couple of singers who made a presentation in front of an audience. And there were people there apparently from the ch local churches who were there to look for people who could do a presentation at their church that sort of thing yeah um, wh why did you do that 
what we don't want it to be is just an event where you hear the latest singer singing. We uh, the target of the Christian Resource Exhibition is to show churches how to use musicians, how to use drama, how to use, say, poetry. Um, so what we do is it's like a showcase for uh, up inspiring up and coming Christian musicians and artists of all kinds to come and show churches how they could use them within their uh, course of their mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, um, these days when there's a lot of outreach going on and um, say um, breakfast clubs for, for men, that sort of thing, then sports people as well coming to show, uh, give their testimony and to show how you could use um, a sportsman giving his testimony to men, for example, not just men, also women, but, you know, sometimes you have to target it for particular areas. So the exhibition is actually, as I come back to that point, a day of discovery. Um, we want church leaders, those with um, authority and those with influence, um, the, the opinion formers too, mm. to come and discover new ideas to take back and rejuvenate sometimes the outreach program and the work of that local church. What can you tell our listeners, particularly those in the United States, about the state of Christianity in Britain? I think it's um, you can get a, a very jaundiced view if you only read certain headlines and you only read certain outlets. There, there is decline, there's no doubt about that, in institutional churches, but that's not total. And there is, uh, there are churches, for example, the one that I go to in Liverpool, which you can have five, six hundred strong in the morning, and it's just an incredibly joyous occasion. Um, so, it, and yet you will, might go down the road and you might find half a dozen people in a very old church, um, you know, struggling to keep things going. It's a very mixed picture. I think there's uh, a, a exciting developments within uh, with a lot of student churches a lot of young people are coming through um, and uh, and what our great um, need now is to develop leadership among the millennials mm. um, we've got a kind of if you like a dying um, leadership level at the moment and what one of the areas that we're going to specialize in at CRE is to how to develop the leadership of those who are in their 20s and 30s because that's the future of the church so we've got to be very pragmatic about things we've got to look long and hard at ourselves and I think the churches right across the denominations are doing that so it's not all doom and gloom. There are enormous things going on. The big church day out, which will be taking place at the end of May, will probably uh, encourage 30,000 people out for those two weekends, um, one north, one south. These are exciting things. These are seriously highly charged events with, with enormous enthusiasm. So I think that's really important for people abroad to, to see that. And what about the uh, number of uh, immigrants who are coming in and planting churches, you know, like from my, the, the country where I was born, Nigeria? Uh, I'm told that some of the biggest churches now in Britain are black-run churches. Correct. And not only um, black, but um, uh, black-led, but also the Polish community bringing Catholics churches over. And, and going to their local Catholic churches. And um, so f- there's a big European influence within Catholicism, which has increased the numbers on that front as well. Um, so we've got 
Um, and that's an exciting situation. The important thing is that we don't get ghettoized. Mm. You know, that we don't have a situation where just the, the, the same type of people stick with each other. The, the exciting thing is that, like, for example, the church in Liverpool and Frontline, where you will get so many races, so many backgrounds, so many traditions, all in this glorious mix of, of one church. And I believe that that is, has got to be the future. Let's, let's not get into ghettos. Hmm. Now, last time we talked, um, you had just released a book um, about Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. And, of course, my mum and dad were from Liverpool. I have a great love for Liverpool. I know you do as well. But uh, tell us about this book um, and, 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 and some of the characters that are in this book that people remember from the, the album. I found the album fascinating when I first heard it. I was 12 or 13 years old when it came out. And I've always, um, it was mind-blowing. For those who were in, who lived through the 60s, as soon as you heard Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, you couldn't but be blown away by what they were doing on that album. We'd never heard anything like it before. And so I played it over the years, thinking what wonderful music is. But also the lyrics almost like fossilized they they were they were a snap of uh, almost like a a print in time of britain what was so interesting about the album was it was thoroughly british in its its kind of connections all the people on on the album there were so mentions of blackburn uh, for example, in Lancashire, you know, no songs ever mentioned places like Blackburn. Well, in those they had days. a lot of holes, didn't they? And there four thousand holes in Blackburn, Lancashire. It <laughs> mentions, and it was talking about potholes actually yeah. in the road, and it was Lennon's, you know, observations of life and McCartney as well. Um, wonderful stories like she's leaving home, giving us a picture, a cameo of of somebody, a young child, a young teenager leaving home. You had, with a little help from my friends, Billy Shears' song. Uh, in fact, Ringo sang that one. But you had Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, very drug-influenced, even though they said the LSD um, didn't, that was just a coincidence. Then I thought, well, why don't we look at, do write a story about what happened next to all the characters, as if they knew each other in 1967, in, I took Greater London as a sort of context for it all, and then have a, a, one of the characters reflecting back 50 years later as to what, how life had changed and actually what it is is a character billy shears um who's mentioned obviously on the album um has become canon william shearwater that was his proper name and he's now looking back as a as a, a canon in the church of england on his relationship with lucy from lucy in the sky with diamonds and what that had meant to him over the years and the secrets that, that were behind it all and what i've tried to do is to reflect on almost the naivety of the 60s and in what we would call now a sort of post Jimmy Savile um, teenies that we're in now in the new century. You, um, you have to just explain yeah. who Jimmy Savile is. Jimmy Savile was a, a, a DJ who uh, after his death we discovered he had molested literally hundreds of, of young girls in particular. Um, st- songs, uh, sorry, stories that are sordid that I wouldn't want to mention. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, unbelievable what he got away with. Um, and in a way, it sent 
ructions right the way through our thinking culturally in the UK because Jimmy Savile was supposedly um, uh, somebody who loved children, cared for them, uh, was a great character, funny, humorous, but he had a, a, an appalling dark side to him. And, um, and I thought, well, we need to reflect that, really. Um, I'm writing post-Jimmy Savile. Mm. So there's an element within the book that is asking serious questions about our na- naivety um, in those days, back in the 60s, and also, um, you know, looking now at, at retrospectively at, uh, at the changes in society and religion and, and uh, lifestyles and socially. So I, I wanted, it, it's a funny book, it's a comic novel, but it has a serious underpinning to it. And it deals with middle-aged angst as well hmm. on, on the part of, of Billy Shears. And what's it actually called? Whatever Happened to Billy Shears. And how can people get it? Uh, go on Amazon and you will be able to get hold of a copy. Just look under Whatever Happened to Billy Shears, Steve Goddard, uh, my name, and uh, you will, will discover it is available via Amazon. Each time I go to Liverpool, my sister Ruth drives me over to a place called Strawberry Field without the S. And Strawberry Field years ago used to be an orphanage um, for self. It was run by the Salvation Army. They had the band there. And at the side of Strawberry Field was a house where John Lennon lived with his auntie Mimi. And uh, he would uh, hear the band play, climb over the fence, and apparently would tell them one day I'll have my own band, which of course he did. And he immortalized the place by writing the song Strawberry Fields. He added an S forever. And today, I believe it's being turned into a museum um, where... People can learn more about the Beatles' connection, but also the gospel, I understand, is being presented at this event. But how come these... I mean, if people don't know Liverpool in those days, it was a pretty poverty-stricken area. Um, Many of the people were part Irish or part Welsh. How come that these four kids could cause such a revolution in music? I think when you hear the musicianship, the quality musicianship of, of Paul McCartney, he was a much more natural musician of all four of them. And then you hear Lennon wasn't far behind, but didn't have the sort of vocal range, but had had the sort of uh, mind to to explore. He was much more exploratory in his mm. thinking. When you put those two dynamics together and you have steel on steel, then you have the makings of an incredible partnership. And, of course, there was enormous rivalry between them, and that's what made it even better, because one would write one song and the other would say, hey, that's, that's too good, he's outshone me there, I've got to go away and write something better. <laughs> and when you've got that kind of tension, wonderful tension between two people who are so, so incredibly gifted, and also they came at a position time uh, in, in time when... Um, the whole media was taking off, the mass media, the early 60s. Suddenly we were all plugged in um, with television. Television was only 10 years old. You have to think about that. Mm. Um, but it had grown exponentially to the point where virtually everybody had a TV set now. And suddenly the Beatles came in. And if you, you'd only have to listen to the charts. To listen to about five songs in the charts, right? And then listen to a Beatles track. And, uh, you know, so it compare the kind of syrupy, dull, 
<laughs> boring ballads that yeah. were out at the time. And suddenly you hear the first chords to I Want to Hold Your Hand or She Loves You, yeah. which came in on the chorus. She loves you. Yeah, I mean, bang, straight yeah. in. And what George Martin did was, uh, as a producer, clearly, was to pick up on that energy. Mm -hmm. So that as a kid, you just turned the radio up the moment they came on. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, that big. So I think that they came at a time when, when rock and roll was sort of dull. It had kind of got squeezed out by the syrupy stuff. Suddenly, as a kid, you were energised by mm. these guys from Liverpool. And um, and it was just such an exciting time. Can you describe Liverpool in those days? You know, I mean, I can. I lived in Liverpool just for a short time, but in those days, it was a real dump. I mean, you know, like at Nazareth, how how, <laughs> how can anything good come out of Liverpool? Well, I think again, that's true of any city. I would say Liverpool is no different. Don't forget, the Beatles were basically middle class. Don't get an idea. I mean, I know Lennon sang a song, Working Class Hero is something to be. But quite honestly, he was not a working class hero. He was a middle class hero. Um, so let's be honest. There are lovely areas around Liverpool that are beautiful. Um, it, it, in the middle of Liverpool 8 in Toxteth, when my uncle actually was a, a vicar, um, that was where you saw a decline and that's where you saw poverty. Mm. And um, my, my uncle really introduced me as a child to Liverpool. I would stay in Liverpool a lot and see all around him the kind of slums being pulled down mm. and new uh, buildings being put in their place. So, yes, there has been um, enormous poverty and, and hardship, but around it there was also affluence. And it's true of wherever you are, virtually in every city. But, you know, the, the, the people in Liverpool are the funniest people in Britain. Um, and the Beatles sort of reflected that. I mean, you know, you spend a lot of time now in Liverpool, but can you describe why people are like that in Liverpool and almost nowhere else in Britain? I think a lot of it was to do with the fact they were on the coast. And I think that you had the, the port and you had a lot of mixed races. You had a lot of people coming in with different influences. So uh, obviously there's a huge Irish connection, but then you've got the Caribbean connection too. You've got, it's a port. It's mm. a constant state of flux. And I think that um, also when you've got a lot of poverty and you've got problems like that, humour and um, almost irony becomes your passport out of it. Mm. it it's a way of dealing with the hardships yeah. and so um if you had a sense of humor together as a group you could laugh together at your situation yeah um and it it freed you from it in some way uh, maybe only temporarily but there was something about humor that does that to the soul mm. and um and i think that was a lot of what was going on in liverpool at the time it, it seemed to me that um you could never conquer the American market. You know, the, it was all one way, wasn't it, with all the Bill Haley and Elvis. And I know Elvis never came to Britain, but um, and all of a sudden the Beatles sort of went the other way, used their Liverpool humour. Uh, were you shocked that they did so well in America? I was just a kid and I couldn't understand why America wouldn't have got it. 
yeah. you know, because I didn't understand the culture of America. Yeah. I understand that much more now, which was much straighter, much more, um, you know, conservative. Mm. Um, but they, but as lads, they couldn't have been anything different from what they were. The, the context they came, they brought up in, they, they were brought up in post-war. There was. Um, a reaction, of course, against the ration book culture of, of the 50s in Britain. They were the first kids who hadn't had to live through the actual, the feeling of the war. I mean, they'd been born um, in the sort of 1940s, early 40s. So they didn't experience the war. But what they wanted to do was almost, I think, to shake off the the greyness of the 50s. You, you know, America never struggled from, from that point of view. They didn't go through what we went through, the poverty, if you like, and the, the, the lack of... Uh, the, what the war took out of Britain financially was enormous. And just to survive... And the 50s was all about just trying to recover. Mm. Now we hit the 60s and we want something more. We want to... You know, we didn't, as kids, we didn't remember the war. What we wanted to do was to, to enjoy ourselves, you know, and the 60s allowed us to do that. And that's why when they came out, they, they, it was all a reaction against the conservative, fairly dull situation of the 50s. And when they went over to America, um, it was like this was a whole new anti-establishment thing going on. And, um, and I think that that's what really energised America. I mean, you know, the stories of when they, they played on the Ed Sullivan show for the first time when the, the crime rate went down for the, the three songs they sang. There yeah. was virtually no crime in America. Yeah. I mean, it's just an astonishing story. Right, right. Um, and they played those songs and they just captivated America overnight. Right, right. Well, if you're a Beatles fan, again, the name of the book is... Whatever Happened to Billy Shears. <laughs> and uh, you can get that. Is it Marylebone Publishing? It's published by Marylebone House in London. Yeah. Um, but your best way is to go onto Amazon and check it out there. Right. Steve Goddard, thank you so much for being on the program. It's a pleasure. You have been listening to Front Page Radio with international journalist Dan Wooding. If you would like a free subscription to the Assist News Service, log on to www.assistnews.net. And if you would like to write to Dan, send an email to assistnews at aol.com. Tune in again for another edition of Front Page Radio on this same station.